Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes, the premier podcast on hand and upper extremity rehabilitation. As a worldwide educator and developer of best-in-class hand therapy content, Susan Weiss, occupational therapist and certified hand therapist, brings you an array of hand therapy specialists, hand care solutions, and more. Welcome to part two of a two-part series with Ms. Gwen Van Strand. If you missed part one, we recommend listening to that before this episode. Prepare to be dazzled with the information you receive in this delightful interview. The thing is that, that, that the whole thing that I'm talking about, intrinsic and extrinsic flexion, uh, is not something weird. Al-Sukaini, uh, weird name, but that's, that's what it is, in 2016 actually found out that us people, we move more intrinsically and more extrinsically um, by making a fist. So when you make a fist, some people are more intrinsic starters and some people are more extrinsic starters. And it happens to be that 70% is extrinsic and, and 30% is intrinsic, but you know, whatever. Uh, after an injury, and your, your finger is hurting on the vulvar side because you have a big gash there because first you cut it and then the surgeon cut it. Not a lot of people will be intrinsic movers. They'll mostly be, uh, sorry, extrinsic movers using their flexor uh, profundus and superficialis. They will start moving from their intrinsics because they don't have to bend their finger because it hurts to do extrinsic flexors because they have to bend at the PIP and DIP joint and that hurts. So they will start moving from the MP joint. But that whole thing about intrinsic and extrinsic movement, that is something you have to observe. People have to do it the way you want it to do it. So you have to observe what kind of movers are they. If it's born or uh, because of the injury, I don't care, but look at how people move. Another thing is that I really, even though I come from Philadelphia where this article was written, tendon gliding exercises, please stop giving out that stupid handout. I know they're good exercises for a lot of things. I don't want to say they're bad exercises, but if you have an FDP that's repaired, why in heaven's name would you want to make a straight fist? There's no reason Yeah, for the FDS, but usually the FDS is nowadays taken out, so you don't want to use that one. And then all the exercises that are on there, if you, if you give them a picture of a full fist, then people think like, well, I can't do that. So I can't do that exercise. So don't give him that. Use your mobile phone. Do the exercise in your practice. Show them what they should do, how they should move. Videotape that with their own phone. Usually people nowadays have their smartphones. You can make a little videotape. And that is their handout to take home. Don't give them all these pieces of paper with positions that they cannot do. They cannot do a hook fist. They cannot do an FDS straight fist. They cannot do a full fist. So why give them that piece of paper? Just discourages them because they can't do it. So I use my mobile phone a lot more and tending gliding exercises only in a later stage when you want to work on some details. But the first four weeks, don't use them. Just don't. So mobile phone to record exercise, I think that is so much better than giving out handouts. Um, well, again, breaking the patterns if you have trouble getting somewhere with your DIP not moving, then your only thought should be, 
this must be because there is somewhere work of flexion that is too high. So I have to figure this out. If it's edema, deal with it. If it's a stiff joint, deal with it. So treat the problem as it is in front of you. Don't treat just the flexor tendon. It's a flexor tendon, maybe with a stiff joint, maybe with a lot of edema. There, there can be all kinds of reasons. Deal with the problem that's in front of you to get the tendon to glide. Mm -hmm. that, does that make sense? If that makes it, great uh, sense, right. Um, yeah, and I said about the handouts, and, and, and the, the, the other thing is uh, interesting. I, I covered a whole bunch of things now already in one story. Um, the twirling glass. Oh, yeah, for DIP, if you want a late stage, use your mobile phone. Do you know how many times millennials look at their mobile phone during a day? This is a research of 2012. Okay. They look 150 times a day. So if you tell these people that every time they look at their phone or pick out their phone, they have to curl their DIP around a mobile phone. This is like in the later stage of the flexor tendon injury, of course, um, three times. They will exercise 450 times their DIP joint, which oh is never going to reach by every hour blocking your finger in extension and then doing the DIP, you know, the blocking exercises. They're not going to do that. But every time they pick up their phone, three times, that would be enough. 450 times you move your DIP joint with, you know, basically a blocking exercise. It's, all, it's basically the, and a lot of people don't know this, but we used to have the Bunnell block. Are you familiar with that one? Yes. And the Bunnell block is basically your smartphone. <laughs> Use them a lot, but then we gave them a Bunnell block. They have the Bunnell block in their pockets. They're looking at it 150 times a day. So there you go. That's your exercise. And it all ties everything I said together. This is how you should entice them to move. And another thing is, and that's a, it's, it's a cute, and you probably notice you're an OT, Lacoboni and Dapretto, all these lovely Italian names. 2005, <laughs> you probably know this one with the mirror neurons in the frontal cortex. This is a very hard thing to read. It's very difficult, but basically it comes down to if you do something that you like, your cortex uses up a lot more area and engages more muscles and more emotion and everything into what you're doing than if you just ask them to bend the finger. So if you ask them to hold a cylinder, that sort of flares up on your functional MRI with a little spot. And then you say, well, let's go and have a nice cup of coffee together and we'll talk, we're good friends, here's your mug of coffee. There's all this fun and good stuff and warm stuff around you. Lots more stuff gets excited in your cortex and you do your exercise better, perform the motion more natural and normal. And then and it's kind of interesting if you would then go to wash the glass that you used after your friend left, then that has less. <laughs> because it's not as much fun to wash a mug or a glass as it is to hold it and drink a glass of wine with your friend. This has all been recorded. So if you want to have people to exercise well, get something that gets them excited. And this has been proven. <laughs> In a way, I mean, I'm stretching it a little bit here, but it is true. This has been recorded. The, the research is there. And if you do something that is related to them as something that is pleasurable, then they will do their exercises in a better way. Isn't that fun? That is so <laughs> fun. And like you said, it's very OT-ish. So I do love it. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And <laughs> reminding us about the importance of incorporating fun and functional activity because we do get hung up a lot in, 
what exercise are we going to do now? Do I need to create this splint in that orthosis in this spinel block? And so it is, you know, hey, you've got a lot of the stuff right there in front of you that they can utilize. So thank you for reminding everyone of that important yeah. incorporating. Just never clean up your little treatment table. Leave all the stuff on there. <laughs> your, your coffee mug and everything that's there. Because every time you look around, it's like, oh, I can use that. I can use that. <laughs> and we've given a lot of attention to our flexor tendons. How about a little love for the extensors? What are some yeah. thoughts that you can share with us on relative motion, controlled active motion? Ready, set, go. Oh, I love extensors. <laughs> you think I only love flexors, but I really love extensors. Um, first of all, we can skip straight to where we are now. Uh, I think relative motion is pretty much uh, established by now. I think most people know what it is. It's been used. A lot of surgeons like it. Uh, it's, took, it's taken a long time, but yay, it's there. Um, well, let's me, let, let me do a you step You might back. need to review a tiny bit. I don't mind going back because I do love to mention again, 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 that we should never forget that even though I am talking about it and on LinkedIn, sometimes I get hashtagged relative motion. Thank you, Gwendolyn. Thank you, Don Lalonde. But really, really, really the person who invented this, who came up with the idea, the brilliant idea about this balancing act is Dr. Merritt. Dr. Merritt is the one who started all of this. He worked with it for 30 years. Nobody paid attention. And suddenly now it's all over the world. Everybody's talking relative motion. I know because I worked with him in the 1980s. Right. He was already working with it, but it took such a long time. And the other person who worked with him for all those years, well, not all those years, but a lot of years is Julie Howell. And we should not forget Sandy Robinson. She actually started with him. She was before Julie Howell. We were all students in his master's program or his, but in the master's program. These were the therapists, and he was the surgeon who developed the entire treatment guideline um, over the last 30 years. And even though Don and I and, and, and lots of people are talking about it now, that's where it started. I think he should bask in the sunlight now that it's famous and, and it's working. It's, it's really fun. Um, and if you really want to talk about specific guidelines uh julie is the one you should interview okay but, uh, <laughs> and and uh so that would be fun but uh basically what uh, the relative motion does is by putting uh you want me to go back that far huh if by putting the uh, np joint of one finger relatively higher or lower than the adjacent fingers will do if you put it higher it's of course in relative more extension than the fingers next to it the mp joint is in relatively more extension and if you put it down below then the mcp joint is in relatively more flexion than the fingers next to it and this affects the tendons of the fingers that extend your fingers at the mp pip and dip joint now by changing the biomechanics. It started out with in the early days that it was four tendons, like a, uh, uh, if you if you have four tendons and you put one higher, then the one that's higher can never be at as much tension as the other ones. But now we're starting to feel that there's much more going on uh, with balancing the extensor tendons uh, between the four fingers. They're all different. 
there's not four equal tendons going to the fingers really. And the way they make this, they, they weave into this extensor mechanism is well, mind boggling to tell you the truth. I love teaching anatomy about that and it's fun, but we're still finding out new stuff, how that balances and what actually changes the balance. Now we know that if putting your NP joint of the injured finger higher than the other fingers, then if you have an injury from the MCP joint and proximal to that, that your extensor tendon is safe. There'll be not a lot of tension on it. Now to look into that, go to the article from Merritt and Howell and Robinson, 2000 and 2005, it will describe it perfectly. And the rehabilitation of the handbook, if it's ever gonna come out, <laughs> uh, actually has a separate chapter by Dr. Merritt and Julie Howell explaining everything. So that's where you should go to find out everything. But you can find these articles and you can find these specific guidelines that are given. Now in the beginning, they had the wrist in a splint for a zone five through seven yes. because they felt, well, in your heart, you know, if you make a fist and then you put your wrist, your, your wrist down in flexion, of course there's gonna be tension on the extensor tendons. So they figured we're putting on a wrist splint and the relative motion extension splint to take the slack off that extensor tendon. Well, it was interesting that Melissa Hirth in Australia, she had her surgeon, he went to a meeting and uh, he came back and he said, we're gonna do this, but he somehow forgot to tell her that she needed to put on a wrist split. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm taking away the good stories <laughs> from Melissa and Julie if they ever come here, but it was, she was just such a bright therapist. She was like, well, you can say that Mr. Surgeon, but I'm gonna protect this patient a little bit. So she gave extra instructions on that they should not do wrist flexion with the relative motion splint on because she felt like I should control that wrist. And at night she put on a long splint, uh, also preventing the wrist from going into flexion. So she changed the protocol a little and she had the same good results. So here we are now saying, well, maybe we don't have to put on that wrist splint with every injury. So for the guidelines, you have to go to the guidelines that Julie Howell has presented. And, and there's a lot of articles out there now. In fact, I think uh, there's three articles this year already in the Journal of Hand Therapy by Colacut, by Johnson, and there's another one, I think. Anyway, um, lots of articles on these uh, protocols that you can look up. And there's not so much that you get confused like the flexors. It really is pretty clear, the protocol with or without the wrist at zone five through seven with your relative motion extension. Okay, that's basically it. If I can say it shorter than that, I don't know, but right. I think it makes it pretty clear. And then you have all kinds of exercise you can do and stuff and how long you're in there, that's a different story, but don't worry about it. If you look up the article, you'll see what to do. Again, for me, uh, I had anxious patients that I held into the wrist splint for four weeks, even though that's not required but she was happy. She got an excellent result. She was scared. She didn't want to go out. I said, fine, don't worry about it. If you do it a week longer, I don't care because you shouldn't be so hung up on exactly where you should do this. Uh, these extensor tendons are safe zone five through seven. Zone four is always sort of a, <laughs> a difficult zone because basically you're on the top of the phalanx, the proximal phalanx. So you have the extensor mechanism already which is wider than the single tendon that's on the back of your hand. So it's like an area of, whoops, what do we do here? <laughs> yeah. So I treat zone fours like zone fives. Okay. 
I just do that. And Julie is pretty much the same way, depending on where. I mean, if you're like really distal on the proximal fins, then I start thinking, well, you know, this is almost a zone three, you know, I'll think about zone three. And then you can, again, when they're sutured by a surgeon and you move in your extensor in your relative motion splint and they say, ooh, ooh that pulls, then you should say, okay, don't do that. <laughs> if it pulls, then it's not good. And sometimes you just have to go the other way and say, okay, now it doesn't pull. Okay, then you do relative motion set. So listen to what the patient says, make them feel themselves because then they know at home also what to do. And you probably want to head on to zone three. I would love to right? go into zone three. Yeah, zone three. Hot, hot item. Love it. Uh, we're not totally sure about why it's working yet. There's a lot of discussion about it. Not everybody is convinced. But some people are really convinced and uh, it's, it's going to be the thing for the next 10 years that we're going to find out what is going on in that extensor mechanism. Extensor mechanism is so complicated. I have been doing anatomy research on it and well, spire fibers have been in the news since uh, 1978. That's when they were published on and that's when they were described. And there's one guy, Dr. Van Zwieten, and he... he uh, it's actually a Dutch guy who moved to Belgium, so I shouldn't be talking about him. Uh, we always make fun between Holland and Belgium. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, he's a great guy. I emailed with him a lot. I, I talked to him a lot when I found out about these spiral fibers and research brought me to his name. And I was like, hey, Dutch guy. So I went to him and he published his last article in a Russian magazine on spiral fibers again. And he is retired now in 2018. Now, spiral fibers are fibers that are just about at the level of the PIP joint, holding the lateral bands together. None of the triangular ligament. It's the spiral fibers doing it. Now, we can talk about, about that, and there's a whole bunch of discussions about that. There's some articles that uh, actually people operating on them already. But here, here it is, something old again. Nothing is new. It's old. Right. And we're finding out, because we're doing this funny relative motion flexion thing. And Dr. Merritt, he is great because he just does these things because he feels that it works. He looks at hands, he, 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 just, he, he doesn't first make some theoretical thing. He just looks at hands, how they move. And he found out if you put the uh, MP joint in a little bit more flexion with your pen between your fingers, and then you push down your finger in a little bit more flexion than the other fingers right next to it, that it's easier to extend. And let's face it, haven't therapists been doing this for a long time that we put, put your pencil between your fingers and then you extend that your PIP joint a little bit better. We've been doing this forever, but he's been using it a lot and, and he's been, he, he did a lot with it and, and, and expanded on the idea. And um, now we have the pencil test, which basically was coined by, well, what else? A therapist, Julie Howell because we therapists have been putting pencils in these fingers forever. But Julie Howell coined it as a test, but I have to say that doing my research, I love going into, onto the internet, I found that the Bouvier test, as it is described, was already described in 1851, but it was for ulnar nerve injuries. And they looked at if you block the, you know, same as with the ulnar nerve splint, if you block the MP joint down in flexion, you can check if the extensor mechanism is still actually extending. It's functioning, all right? But we should say pencil test because the Bouvier test is for ulnar nerve. So there you go. Um, now, if you do the, Elson, uh, the, the pencil test, 
then you can see that there's still extension, even though the central slip might not be there. Or if it's a closed injury, you have no idea if it's there. It might be there, it might not be there, we don't know. And um, well, do we want to know if the central slip is intact? Is that interesting? No, probably not, because we can extend our PIP and DIP fine without a central slip if we have enough extensor mechanisms still there. Mm -hmm. So no, testing if the central slip is injured is really not that interesting. If the pencil test shows you that you can extend your PIP and your DIP joint, then you can treat with relative motion flexion and just let it heal. And the reason why that is true is that I gave this panel with Dr. Lalonde again. I'm very thankful to Dr. Lalonde. He took me to so many places. Um, but we were there with Dr. Bindra, which is a UK surgeon, but he works in Australia. And he was doing this uh, relative motion flexion thing, and we were on a central slip panel. It was a fun panel, a European uh, meeting in Denmark, in Copenhagen. And he told me, he said, if you have a closed injury of the zone three, PIP joint, you know, they knock their knuckles and it, it, after a couple of days, it doesn't extend anymore. Well, you know, it's not a clean cut. It's gonna be shredded, you know, like uh, shredded ends. Sure. Now, you, know, you know what I mean, right? It's yes. not a clear cut. So if you open it up surgically, you'll have two frayed tendon ends. Right. Putting that together is never gonna be a great result because you can't put your suture in anything or you have to do it really bulky and that's not gonna work. And even when you go in and you could get it fixed, you're creating even more scar tissue. And this is what he emailed to me. And these words have been with me for the last three, four years, because I think these are wise words. Maybe if you keep it closed and you put it in a splint that makes sure that the tendon ends don't go too far apart, then it will heal maybe a little bit longer. And I even asked him about it. I said, yeah, but, yeah, but you know, if you just do it conservatively, they might have like two or three millimeters that you lose because they will heal, but you might lose a little length. He says, the, the two or three millimeter length that you lose is nothing in comparison to the amount of adhesions you get when you open it up. He says, you're much better off doing it conservatively. And there's actually an article by Colzani in 2016 on PIP joint injuries, uh, central slip injuries. And their conclusion is, as a general rule, and I'm quoting from their article, as a general rule, an attempt of conservative treatment should always be performed. So and then that's coming from surgeons, so imagine that. Surgeons, all surgeons are saying, stay away from it. Just let it heal, but make sure that they don't make a full fist. Now, that is the whole relative motion flexion thing. The relative motion flexion thing started with, we can extend really well. So we're saying, look, the extensor tendon is working. This is great. So we're going to do this. And then suddenly, especially Julie, who was, you know, sort of responsible, so saying like, ooh, but what if they flex? How can we stop them from flexing too far? So that discussion came up. And uh, so we had to start thinking about that. Um, and uh, now we're coming up with, and there's actually an, an article by Johnson in the Journal of Hand Therapy, where he described, he was inspired by Lynn Fee and Julie Howell on a course, I think. And um, they showed this whole concept of combining two protocols. And, uh, and I'll get to the two protocols. 
And he actually describes a nice version of what we call a combination of short arc motion and relative motion flexion. Um, so, uh, I should make a note about uh, short arc motion for zone five through seven, actually. <laughs> that. Don't forget to ask me that. Um, so, um, what you can do is we came up with all these cute clip-on splints that have a little gutter on the volar side. So you're doing short arc motion, which was coined by Ross Evans. And you can find that article all over the place. I think everybody knows about that because that's been around for a long time. And you, you, you limit the flexion to about 30 degrees. And then as you go through the weeks, you increase the amount of flexion. And then during when they're not exercising, they're in an extended splint, like a static straight splint. All right, now there you go. There's a static splint that's on most of the day, and then you know how I feel about putting people in splints all day that doesn't move. They start moving from the MP joint and not extending from the PIP joint. So there you go into that wrong pattern. Um, but anyway, so that's a short arc motion. So what we do is we have the relative motion flexion splint, and then you click on a splint on the volar side, which actually has the short arc motion one. Mm. And then you can do short arc motion flexion and still extend the right way by extending at the PIP joint, at the PIP joint. And they don't have to hold their hand. What you do with short arc motion, you sort of block the MP a little bit in flexion, make sure they're extending from the PIP joint because they do it not even thinking about it because if they lift their finger out of that little gutter, the relative motion flexion splint will get them to extend at the PIP joint. And when they go to flexion, they're stopped by the short arc motion splint. Now, he did it with a little dorsal splint and a strap. I have a little volar clip on. There's all kinds of things going around now, and nobody has, like, the answer. Uh, I have done it with some people um, that were a little stiff from themselves. They weren't very hyper, hypermobile people. I would protect them a little bit long, more. But sometimes I use a tape, uh, kinesio tape, on the dorsum of the hand and extending over the finger so they can't go into too much flexion. Works, too. And you're utilizing this for zone three, whether they're conservative oh. or post-surgical? Uh, post-surgical is pretty much the same, yeah. But, you know, the tape on the sutures is never a really good idea. So then you go for the short arc motion. But the other thing is you can ask the surgeon how sure he is about his approximation of the tendon ends. And if he's like, oh, you can go all the way, I don't care, then okay, then you do that. But sometimes a little tape on the back of the finger the first two weeks is kind of nice because then they know not to go too far and still extend in the right way. Because if you want to exercise the central slip, you have to extend at the PIP joint and not at the MP joint. Because everybody knows if you extend, and you say people make your, straighten out your fingers and they'll do hyperextension at the MP joints and the fingers will be slightly bent. Right. A lot of people do that. And what you need to do is extend at the PIP joint and then you have to go a little bit more into flexion with your MP joints. You know exactly, everybody knows this when you do it in front of your face, you see it happening. You need to extend at the PIP joint. But they will do it at their MP joint. And that becomes within two or three days, the normal pattern. And you have to break that pattern. And that's where relative motion flexion is really, really useful because they continuously actually exercise without putting any much strain on it because they're not really exercising. They're just moving around. If you reach out for a cup or reach out to grab your glasses, you extend at the PIP joint, not at the MP joint. Every motion is translated to a little bit of PIP extension. So it's, it's really great, but if you are a little worried about how safe it is with flexion, then you have these little tricks to go into the combination of short arc motion and relative motion flexion. 
Uh, Those are great tricks. Well, yeah, these are, you were asking about specific tricks. And the other thing is, if you think about long-term success, um, a lot of times we work on these people for three months and then you get them to like, ooh, a good result, we're happy. And then you say goodbye and then you meet them like six, seven months later in the supermarket and they're like, well, it went all the way back to flexion, but you know, I'm doing fine. Because it sort of collapses on them. And that is because that tissue is not really strong. You got the extension, but it's not really strong. I mean, think about it. That little bit of extension that you do is not gonna counteract the full day work of flexion that you do when you're just walking around with a healthy, between brackets, um, finger. So you're, you're gonna do way more flexion. So then within a couple of months, the flexion will win again, there'll be some attenuation, it will get weaker and you will lose your beautiful extension. And then you say, well, we can give them exercises. Well, again, they don't do their exercises, but even if they would do their exercises, you do extension for three seconds on the PIP joint extension, 10 times, three seconds hold. And you do that every waking hour, which is 12 times. And I make a little, uh, little uh, calculation here, three seconds, 10 times, every hour, 12, 12 times, so times 12 is 360 seconds a day, which is six minutes. So you do six minutes of extension. If you do every hour, 10 times PIP extension with an exercise that you teach them, you, you don't have to give them any exercise programs and they can wear it for like up to a year, letting that tendon heal and get stronger and not going into the trap of going into too much flexion. So I think the long-term results are only uh, going to be held if you do relative motion flexion splinting, even if you don't have them in therapy anymore. Just tell them, keep wearing that. And the other thing, and this is a really important point, and I know Julie is always very adamant about this, there is no point in any of this whole uh, uh, rehab uh, program anywhere in this point from day one, you have to have a nighttime in extension split. Always. And that has to be very long sometimes up to the six months even. But as long as they start sort of like lagging a little bit, they should still be wearing nighttime splinting in extension. That's really important all through the whole rehab program from day one. Mm. You can never have only the relative motion flexion splint, but it's only for at night. And you can use, at a certain point, you can use those neoprene little tubes. Fine, no problem. You know, as long as they're straight when they're sleeping. So that's good. That's, I, I didn't want to forget that one because it's really important that you have nighttime splinting. And the last thing I would like to say about relative motion flexion, and I have this slide for my surgeon, surgeons who are sometimes a little less uh, patient than we are. I keep telling them, you know, we're doing relative motion, but sometimes we might go to maybe even a dynamic extension splint for a little bit, or maybe back to a little bit of static splinting during the day. If it doesn't really work right away, you should use everything you have to sort of help it happening. And sometimes you have to, but certain patients, they need a different splint for a little bit during the day. And then they use the relative motions flexion splint, not all day, but in combination with. So you have to keep trying to get the result with whatever you have. And that can be a combination of splints. You have to keep looking at it. And then you can get with the acute injuries, you can get a good result. And sometimes it takes a little longer. That's the whole thing. And you see it not going really well, then you have to keep sticking. Don't just stick to the relative motion flexion. If you see it going into a little bit of flexion, then maybe you have to 
with more extension splinting because it's not strong enough yet. So work it and, and, and look at what's happening and see if you can get it. And if after three months it's not working, well, maybe then the surgeon should open it up and look if it's all going well. But I've never, I've never encountered that. But, and I don't know if I, I, I should say that here. There are some instances where relative motion flexion really does not work. It's really easy if you have a flexion contractor, an old boutonniere or a flexion contractor, there is no way that those lateral bands are magically going to go up to the dorsal. Okay. It's not going to happen because the finger just doesn't go straight. So you first have to have a mobile PIP joint. It has to have passive PIP extension. That should be possible. If you don't have passive PIP extension, the whole relative motion flexion thing cannot happen until you have corrected that problem. And another one that's not really well known yet, but that we're working on, and I can see it, but some people don't see it just as clearly, but, and Julie, she knows all about this. If, you're D, if you have a boutonniere, sometimes your DIP joint can be fixed in hyperextension, you know, like all the way up in hyperextension, the DIP joint, you know, as a part of the deformity. Yes. As long as you have a DIP that's in hyperextension, the relative motion flexion will not work as well. Sometimes it does, but it won't work as well. To me, it's clear if I say the tendon is active insufficient, but not a lot of people get that. But because the DIP is up in extension, the extensor tendon is, of course, a little slack because it's a little too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you put it down in flexion, it gets tight. If you put it in hyperextension, it's loose. And because it's loose, the extensor tendon will pull up. And then it's a little bit too long, actually. I don't know if you can follow that, but then basically it's a little too long. Mm-hmm. So then you cannot extend as well. So your extension force will be a little bit less. We, we, in Holland, we call that active insufficient. And I know there's a whole bunch of discussions on that. But what we do know is that relative motion flexion doesn't work as well if you have the DIP in hyperextension. Now, these are all theories, so don't get too much into this, but remember that if you have a really bad boutonniere deformity and you want to use relative motion flexion, make sure that the DIP can go to zero at least, so correct it to zero, and the PIP joint should be able to go passively to extension. So basically, correct the boutonniere before you use relative motion flexion. How we philosophize about how this does or doesn't work and I probably shouldn't have said the whole thing about the uh, active insufficient because we had heated discussions about this but it might be fun to talk about it maybe somebody comes up with a really good model to explain why it doesn't work as well right so if you are able to get the DIP back to the neutral area then at that point and you had full passive extension of the PIP then it would be worth then it works. going into it right then it works but only then it's kind of weird but then it works so you have to correct first and then start with the relative motion flexion you get basically got a two two parts to the protocol if you have an old injury with the old injury so yeah. with that uh, what do you find i know this is off topic a little but what have you found the easiest or most efficient way of correcting that pip long-term flexion contracture yeah well i'm very simple in that I believe there's nothing better than old-fashioned plaster of Paris. Okay. I'm, I'm all about plaster of Paris. If you do it well, it doesn't have to be bulky. You can do it nicely. I usually do the DIP joint first in, towards flexion or towards okay. neutral. 
then you have the tip, so the tip of your finger is casted with the DIP in as much DIP extension or, or neutral position as, as possible and, and gradually you get it down. And then you let that harden and then you have a nice leverage arm, lever arm, to use when you're casting in the PIP joint, which should go to extension. Okay. So I make a two-part cast. It turns into one cast. Eventually, it turns into one cast because you sort of mold it together. But first do the DIP, correct that one, let it harden a little bit, and then do the PIP right after that. And then you can extend the PIP joint as much as, as is possible. Leave it on for a couple of days or sometimes, uh, maybe even a week sometimes, but take about six to eight weeks to get that thing corrected with plaster of Paris. Of course, you have it corrected passively. It does not mean by that time that you actively can hold it in that position of PIP extension. So then you have to start working with relative motion flexion and static splints to hold the extension. So there you have to start, you know, working all your magic with all the stuff that we have. It's actually a fun thing to treat, but you have to be very flexible. <laughs> right. And stages and because there's, it, it's, it takes it's a good not, bit of time. Yeah. Yeah, it's not so hard really because you see it happening right in front of you. So it's, it's not it's not like six to eight weeks is the magic number. Sometimes you get them corrected in three weeks and you can start with your relative motion flexion. If it takes longer, then it takes longer. And if it never works, then you need a surgeon to, <laughs> to correct things surgically. You know, sometimes you just have to ask them like, I can't get it corrected. So then you have to do your magic with your surgery and then we'll start with treating it again, you know the way we know how to treat it. But you see, you see fairly good results with the utilization of those techniques. Oh, yes, definitely, yes. Uh, the, the older the injury, the harder it is, of course. But uh, I've seen very good results. And, and, and just so you know, I, I also do plaster of Paris for my mallet fingers. And basically, it's the same story if you look at the cells and the tissues. Uh, my, I had mallet fingers that were six months old badly treated with different kind of splints and still got a good result but by casting and i use a little piece of tape to keep the finger straight and that they can't take it off because it's stuck to their finger so they cannot take it off which they do at home no they do so i use a little piece of uh, like badly st good sticking tape like really good put it on the photo side pull it up the patient holds the finger up by the tape and then I cast it around it, very small little cast. It does not slide when you go into flexion. They can rebuild houses with that thing on. Oh my I, gosh. Yeah, they, they can. And I have them put a little bit of a clear nail polish or if they want to do uh, the colors of whatever soccer game or a soccer team is their, their, their fan of, the colored nail polish on it so it's a little bit water resistant. You can put it straight on the skin because plaster Paris does not give the horrible skin that plastic uh, splints gave if you if you if you put on a plastic splint you leave it on for two weeks your skin is macerated right if you put on a plaster of paris splint same thing mallet splint you leave it on for two weeks it's dry the skin is dry if anything too dry it's like scaled mm -hmm. so um it, it breathes uh, people don't really bother they're not bothered as much with the the, the, the casting as they are with the splints and I ended up doing it like that all the time and my results were just all awesome. And there's actually an article, an Italian guy, ooh, Tocco, T-O-C-C-O. Um, uh, he actually compared casting to uh, a removable splint and his results were definitely better for 
using non-removable. He didn't use plaster of Paris. He used some other splinting material, but same thing. So we're going to have to put that article in our list too. That sounds <laughs> like another one to read. I know. So relative motion, we covered it all. I think we covered a very awesome amount. This was an absolutely wonderful opportunity for us to learn from you and for you to share with the world an amazing amount of tips and tricks and things that people are going to be able to incorporate in their clinical practices immediately. And I can't thank you enough for your time and your energy. Oh. And I'm, I'm ready to like have a video of all these fun little <laughs> splints is what I'm looking for. So we can learn some more. Well, I'm going to be at the uh, San Antonio ASHT meeting. Oh, so, wonderful. Well, everybody's going to have to go to that yeah, one for I sure. I get to talk about a lot of this stuff. <laughs> so. I'll look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so yeah. much. Yes, it was fun. And I, I prepared my CMC. We never got to that, the thumbing CMC. <laughs> we will have to do that one another time because I want to respect your time. and, and Yeah, it was fun. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So yeah, no problem. And I will make a little list of mostly, yeah, the articles that I mentioned, I pretty much did it already. And uh, I'll send it to you. And then you can send those emails, uh, people that email the uh, reference list. I'll have that to you in a couple of days. And uh, people can email me or try LinkedIn where I'm not as often as I should be, but. <laughs> I'll put that in the show notes for everybody too. And the sheet, the info sheet, your LinkedIn. And my, yeah, and my email address. And, and your email. Oh, yes. thank you so much for giving them that. I really appreciate it. No problem. No problem. It's fun. Thank you. Too much information. <laughs> <laughs> Never too much. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Hand Therapy Heroes. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review. Visit handtherapy.com and register for our newsletter containing free content and courses about our fascinating hands. Hold hands today for a more functional tomorrow.